I'm William Jess Laird. This is Image Culture. In 2008, Robert Beck became Robert Buck. He did this in response to an idea that in a state of hypermodernity, the status of the name of the Father had been fundamentally shaken. In its absence as a universal, he says, each of us must invent our own, be it knowingly, explicitly, or intuitively. Robert changed his by the exchange of a single vowel. It was a work that marked a major turning point in his life and practice. I met with Robert at his studio in New York on the occasion of his recent back-to-back solo shows at Ulterior Gallery. The first, Vestige, premieres a collection of staged Kodak instant photographs made in the early 80s during Robert's first years in New York. The second show, titled Secondhand, presents Buck's ongoing series of amended thrift store paintings, a body of work he began to coincide with the changing of his father's name. Remember that you can see my portrait of Robert in his studio at williamjesslaircom slash imageculture. Here I am with Robert Buck. I thought maybe we'd start, I feel like every time I, I talk to you, what we inevitably get to at some point is psychoanalysis, Lacanian philosophy. Where'd your interest in that grow from? The first thing to say mm-hmm. is Lacan mm-hmm. is not philosophy. <laughs> Sorry. God, you're getting... It's okay. No, <laughs> it's important. Already. It's important. Yeah. Because part of my interest in psychoanalysis, as he defined it, is that knowledge... The knowledge of psychoanalysis comes from the subject Mm -hmm. lying on the couch. Mm -hmm. So it's not epistemology. It's it's not philosophy. If anything, it's ethical Mm -hmm. because he's following the analysand Mm -hmm. and in his lifetime and then in the Freudian field, which he kept alive and established or reestablished, I should say, is being kept relevant in civilization into the 21st century, Mm -hmm. to repeat myself, because of what's being said and heard in the clinic. Mm -hmm. My interest in Freud came in high school with the interpretation of dreams. Mm -hmm. I was like, whoa, this is so cool that there's something else going on, which I have no control of, but there is a kind of quasi-science surrounding it. So I kept that interest up. And it was when I went through the independent study program at the Whitney, Mm -hmm. and Mary Kelly was one of the instructors, and Mary Kelly brought uh, Lacan and contemporary psychoanalysis, and that reanimated my interest, and I stayed with it, Mm -hmm. but not as, and this is important to say, not as any kind of inspiration for my art. I have enough going on. Mm-hmm. Not to need Lacan or Jacques-Alain Miller or any of the others, but as a way to frame it. Mm-hmm. I felt a greater affinity with the discourse of psychoanalysis than I did with, say, the discourse of the university. Mm-hmm. The paradox, of course, is is that's how I learned of psychoanalysis, is through the university discourse. Well, you mean at the Whitney ISP? At the Whitney ISP. But it was also coming through, I mean, Mary Kelly's knowledge was coming through film studies mm-hmm. and her university uh, career in, in England. Mm-hmm. And she brought that with her. What was she like to work with? She was great. What was the ISP program like at the time? Um, it was a very volatile time politically. Mm-hmm. It was the first wave of the culture wars. Mm-hmm. And it was often very contentious. Um, Do you mean amongst your fellow students? Yes. Or uh, 
not students, yeah, I, I guess. Uh, fellow classmates yeah. of sorts, yes. And just to be clear, the Whitney has uh, curatorial, critical, and studio. Mm-hmm. Those are the three branches. They have this kind of um, bifurcated program where artists will visit and then theoreticians or critics will also come to visit. But because it was 93, we were, as I say, in the first wave of what we now really live and breathe, Mm -hmm. which is the culture wars. Um, How do you define that? The weaponization of culture for political ends and the way in which there is an understanding of culture at work Mm -hmm. in late capitalism. How does it work in spreading globalization, Mm -hmm. benefiting globalization. I mean, maybe on the local level, it would have been called gentrification, Mm -hmm. but now it works at this much wider network Mm -hmm. called globalization. But around that same time, if I'm not mistaken, there was the Whitney Biennial, Mm -hmm. which was a very politicized one. You said this was in 1993? 1993. Uh And there was a lot of pushback at that biennial for quote-unquote politicizing art Mm -hmm. but it's really the atmosphere we live in today Mm -hmm. where um, art has been politicized in a way that is conscious of its use in late capitalism and put to use for those purposes Mm -hmm. what was the change because i guess you were you came to new york what 10 years before you started at the whitney isp about? Uh, about 12 years, yeah. So what was the... I mean, I guess we should jump back even further. I mean, what was it like when you, you first came to New York? What were those first years like? Amazing. Mm-hmm. Because... Where were you coming from? The suburbs of Baltimore. Mm-hmm. You know, you, New York was like this shining city on the hill, mm-hmm. especially for a young man who wanted to get out from where he had been brought up mm-hmm. for freedom and expression and all of those things that a city can offer. This city was not, of course, the city it is today. It's been, I think, in a like a post-9-11 world. Mm-hmm. That, for me, was the fulcrum, the flexion point, where yeah. the city changed to something that is more monetized and capitalized. So back in the day, there was a certain freedom, and a young person could eke out a living for nothing. Mm-hmm. I remember moving almost every two years my residence, like where I was living, because you could. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, let's live in Jersey City or let's live in Hoboken or the East Village, Chelsea, etc. So there was a there was a sense of freedom, and that was culture wide. It was before there was this awareness of the political impact the culture could have. Mm-hmm. You know, I live in the sh- I, I was brought up in the shadow of the '60s, and now is that like a blessing or a curse it's interesting to think about these first years in new york for you i mean we should say that you have that you have at ulterior right now you have the second of two consecutive shows that have just gone up and the first was a collection of of instant photographs right uh, polaroids that you made in the first couple years you're in new york yes they were kodaks Mm -hmm. they weren't polaroids um it's an easy mistake to make mm-hmm. because the Kodak technology was on the market for only four years. It was Kodak's version of Polaroid, and Polaroid brought litigation and mm-hmm. won. It's funny. It's one of those things that's kind of like Kleenex, right? Exactly. <laughs> that's my example. Yeah. yeah. It's like Kleenex. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, those, the images that I took were indeed the very first few years that I was living in the city. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing, William, is I hadn't made a distinction between the artistic pursuit and life. Mm-hmm. I just was doing. So it was kind of like this nascent artist. And you can see, I think, in those photographs, later themes. Mm-hmm. But although I did not make a distinction... I was still drawing on something I refer to as Mm know-how. An artist has a certain intuition, whether you professionalize it or whether you don't. Mm -hmm. And it's a way of dealing with life or experiences that otherwise could not be processed Mm -hmm. or sustained. And so for that, really nothing's changed. I'm still doing the same thing, but there's... um, a different way that I positioned myself and my art in the world. If you're coming to New York and, and you have this, uh, you call it an intuition, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, when was that there before? Was that there when you were, when you were outside Baltimore? Like, when did you know that you were... I knew gonna... I was an artist very young. Like, how young? Probably five or six. Wow, that's, that's wild. What, do you remember? Do you have a moment? Um, I know that this is kind of auto artist biography sort of thing but Mm -hmm. it was something that i would do with my mother Mm -hmm. and when my mother was making art um things were calm at at home Mm. um and i was speaking to someone quite recently and realized that for my mother too art was a way to handle trauma turmoil the void Mm -hmm. if i can put it like that so I was getting two things. I was getting this time with my mother, but I was also learning without language how to make sense or handle life. Mm-hmm. And the, you mentioned the first show at Ulterior. Yeah. Or I'm sorry, the, the two shows at Ulterior. The second one is called Second Hand, in which I modify paintings that I find at thrift stores across the country, mm-hmm. secondhand stores. But my mother was a Sunday painter, so that would be the link. Making those sorts of paintings? Yes. Yes. Not not formally trained. Right. But the drive, the satisfaction, the the enjoyment of making art, I would I would argue is still the same. So there's something kind of familiar about picking up those paintings. Exactly. Interesting. Exactly. Yeah. And then bringing them from one context mm-hmm. or one economy, which would be the thrift store. Right. El Paso. Mm-hmm. You've probably been to Savers in El Paso. We've ta- I, yeah, I think we've talked about. There's like a very distinct genre of like desert landscapes. Yes, you know what I mean. And yeah, totally. And, the, and they have their they have a total. They're completely on their own spectrum. You know what I mean. And mm-hmm. like, what's good, what's not good. You know, they have like their own logic to them. Mm-hmm. And some of them are amazing. I mean, they're actually like uh, exactly super beautiful. That's and, my. That's my point and Mm -hmm. that's my pleasure yeah it's to to reclaim these paintings and then take that economy if you will that context and bring it into the context of a contemporary art gallery right and in doing that bring the signatures of contemporary art gallery goers Mm -hmm. superimpose it on a painting using a grid Mm -hmm. which is how artists would transcribe from one source to another before the overhead projector and then put those paintings 
again in circulation. So it kind of circulates from, say, El Paso to New York and then into a collector's home wherever. And that idea of recirculating something mm-hmm. has something to do with the body because I my contention is, is that any work of art falls from the body of the artist like a feather mm-hmm. from a bird. And then it's recuperated by the museum, by the gallery, what have you. So I... I can see this idea of the body both with the signature that's left behind and with the painting that's left behind. Mm-hmm. What do you find is the significance of the trellis that these paintings hang on? Well, the trellis, the, the immediate thing is that it has a relationship to the context of a secondhand store or a thrift store. Mm-hmm. I think everyone can understand or perceive that immediately like, oh, I saw that at the Goodwill store. Mm-hmm. Of course, it also has a relationship to the street, because first in Soho, then in Chelsea, now in front of the Whitney, people will often sell their wares, mm-hmm. Sunday painters, right. not formally trained painters, on these trellises. But of course, that trellis is an echo of the trellis or the lattice on the painting, by which I transcribe the signature. Mm. So it's a kind of um, echo. And I think of them as like skins. But going back to psychoanalysis, Mm -hmm. there is a way in which that screen or lattice, lace, embroidery of some kind, functions as a a screen over the void. I know it's a bit heavy, but it's what art does. Like art essentially is that way, as I've been saying, to handle the real And in the 21st century, we're living closer to the real. Mm -hmm. The Lacanian real? Yes. (laughs) But Lacan or Miller or whomever, it's, yes, originally defined by Mm -hmm. Lacan as the three consistencies, imaginary, real, and symbolic. Mm -hmm. I guess you started collecting these paintings at the same time you're doing the photographs, correct? No, I only started collecting the paintings maybe 10 years ago to coincide with changing my father's name mm-hmm. by a single vowel. So the paintings, the secondhand paintings, as I call them, are a way to illuminate or explicate what that change is about. Mm-hmm. So the name, we're going a little bit further. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so bear with me. The name is also secondhand. Right. Or it's inherited. For me, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. You inherit it, but you have no choice in making it right you can make a name for yourself but the one you're given is the one unless you do something else with it that you carry through life right Mm. it's there before you begin and it's there after you leave what i've done by just the exchange of two vowels Mm -hmm. is to question that the status of the name of the father in the 21st century And where it differs from artists who have done this in the past, I did not do it in the imaginary, in other words. So it's not Hérose Célevé of Duchamp, nor is it Ziggy Stardust of Bowie. Neither is it in the symbolic Philip Goldstein to Philip Guston, Andy Warhol to Andy Warhol. What I did was in the real. Hmm. So how that's apprehended 
how that name is put back into circulation is a question, and it's an open-ended question. And in a way, I want it to remain an open-ended question because it rattles you. It, it causes perplexity, which we are confronted to increasingly in the 21st century in hypermodernity. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about perplexity for a moment and the real. Mm-hmm. How can Columbine happen and then Sandy Hook mm-hmm. and then Parkland and now Santa Fe, Texas? This is a, these are random acts. They have no sense. They have no, there's nothing in common to them. So that is something we must all manage. How, what is this senselessness? And there's a kind of move now that differs from what was happening in the 21st century, or the 20th century, pardon me, which is a kind of sliding or scanning or slipping. And this is not just because of technology, perhaps brought on or precipitated or, or um, accelerated by technology, but you, it's in life. It's, it's, it's in the everyday that we deal with this going from one news item to another, to mm-hmm. another, to another, to another. It's, it's kind of like an event horizon. The more that we do it, you can feel it on Instagram. The mm-hmm. more that we do it, the more we're compelled to do it. And this is where Donald Trump kind of is an engine for this he's the father of um he's the father of this kind of perverse enjoyment i would call it a perverse enjoyment of like tragedy of like national tragedy things like that yes a dark enjoyment because we have to ask ourselves Mm -hmm. if we wanted these things to stop they would have stopped right the show that i did in 2004 they're tolerated in a sense yes they're tolerated And I would even say they're enjoyed, in right. quotes. Right. The, the, the kind of touchstone text for this would be civilization and its discontents. Yes, Freud's text. Exactly. Yeah. So why do these acts continue to manifest themselves at an increasing rate? Mm-hmm. So again, bear with me, but the, the, the pillar, the, the name of the father that was the screen against the real, we didn't really have to question the real. But we do now, because the name of the father has fallen. The status has changed. So we are confronted to this real. And this idea of sliding or metonymy, we could Mm -hmm. say that the father was uh, the metaphor. When the symbolic was in place, we worked with metaphor. Now we're, we're more, the paradigm would be metonymy. And metonymy is why we could say that the future is feminine and not female because female is of the same binary as male female Mm -hmm. feminine is i could identify as feminine you could identify as feminine the idea of identification is is left open with feminine what's the nature of the shift from the symbolic to the real like what is it like to live in a world where we deal mostly with the symbolic that's your father's world Mm -hmm. or your father's father's world in other words, war, mm-hmm. there were world wars. Right. They were localized. They had a reason. They had sense. They had meaning. Wars today, terrorism, mm-hmm. does not have meaning. We are always talking about the senselessness of something. Right. So this idea that we're living without sense is what I mean when I say there has been an unprecedented shift in civilization. We could say it began just for 
convenience mm-hmm. in 68. Stonewall, uh, May of 68, Selma. Let's go back further. Sure. So we have these uh, diverse groups who, from the margins, become into the, the center. Mm-hmm. So this begins to erode the name of the father because that one name, so to speak, that, that particular symbolic excludes people. It doesn't work for minorities, ethnicities, etc. So it's not like I could say it happened at this particular time. They're flashpoints. Right. And it happened gradually. I think technology is the elephant in the room mm-hmm. because technology creates another dimension and this is fascinating is it Duchamp's fourth dimension maybe it's certainly an infrathin because you can't really put your finger on it but it creates something that we all have to manage and something that does accelerate the news or creates a desire for this strange appetite that we seem to have as as human beings, mm-hmm. speaking beings. I want to talk about this in the context of, of your life and your work, because when you talk about the experience of changing your name from Robert my, Beck my to... My father's name. Excuse me, yes. <laughs> That's when the you distinction. Talk, when you talk about changing your father's name from Robert Beck to Robert Buck, I've heard you talk about it as... as I mean, obviously it has everything to do with what you've just been describing, but it also seems like it might have been what I mean to say is there must be like a point, you know, there must be a point where you say, this is something I'm going to do. You know what I mean? And, and you describe that you looking at the world, you can you can understand it in this term. But what was it that thing for you? OK, the first thing to say, again, is that whatever I have to say about my work mm-hmm. in relationship to whether it's the university discourse, the analyst discourse comes after the fact. Right. As we were saying earlier before we set up the mics, the artist works in the blind spot. Mm -hmm. If you're not working in the blind spot, why do it? What are you doing? Exactly. I felt at a certain point that my work had created a vocabulary or a lexicon for experiences that I otherwise couldn't contend with. Mm -hmm. But I knew there was a beyond of that. I knew there were another set of circumstances or experiences that had to be unpacked as scary as that was. So that's partly what precipitated that, the name change, and also the feeling that I wanted the work to be um, commensurate with the work that I had grown up with, with the work that shook or rattled or, or perplexed me, like Jackson Pollock or when I mean in a way there was a the artist would create new knowledge and that seemed to me in the early aughts to be changing art became more transactional it became more monetized that's the first era in which hedge fund guys got involved right and art was seen as investment rather than discourse Mm -hmm. so it was a way to respond to it did a lot at once, William. It kind of responded to the personal aspect, which I'll talk about in a moment, the cultural aspect, and then the work itself. Right. Because I had, I, I, whatever artist you might name, mm-hmm. I would contend, is devising a vocabulary for these experiences that would otherwise go 
unspoken, like in quotes. So I felt I had done that. Like I had come up with this glossary and now it was was a little bit, it was a dead end. Right. The word buck, I felt like I got four things at once that were very much specific to the work. Yeah. So the first, money. Mm -hmm. Okay, art market. Big bucks. Big bucks. (laughs) Sure. From your lips, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Um, The sun in native cultures, American native cultures. The stag, which is littered in my work as Robert Beck Mm -hmm. on the cover of an artist book, in fact. I felt it was like some kind of spirit animal. Mm -hmm. So I was just making that transition. But the beautiful one for me is to dislodge is to throw something off one's back. Yeah. It was also a way to prod or to push or to move me forward. To buck you forward. Exactly. And um, it did that. It did that in ways I couldn't even begin to imagine when I thought that I would do this. Right. And speaking of Utah, as we just were, I was in Utah. It was August 2007, I knew I wanted to do this. I didn't know how. I was looking for anagrams of my name. I think the best one I came up with was Trek Cobber, which just didn't work. Mm -hmm. And I wanted something that was in the real, let's say. So the word or the signifier is in the symbolic, the letter is in the real. And it came to me like a thunderclap, Mm -hmm. like almost as if I had been called to do this. So we can call it a work of art, mm-hmm. but I think it's more appropriate to call it an act of art or a maneuver because that way it keeps it circulating and unknowable. What was the first work you made after the change? These works that are hanging behind me, these cell works. Really? Yeah. That's serendipitous. Yes, it is. Um, we can refer to the photograph for that. Um, there were a series of works that I did that all in some way, and I can see this retrospectively, yeah. had to do with metonymy. Like the cell pieces, which are created with uh, a process called hydrographics. So there's a small object that, that is pulled up through like a bath, and on the surface of that bath is a film with a print. When the object comes through that film, it, ret- it retains the print, and then it's laminated. Mm-hmm. So the inlay of automobiles, like wood inlay and all that is right. done hydrographically. But the cells can be installed on the floor, in corners, on the ceiling, and they're meant to evoke this idea of things morphing or splicing, dividing, multiplying. And that for me was this kind of creeping sensation that we were going to a horizontal from, let's say, a vertical plane, mm-hmm. speaking topographically plus the idea and the signifier cell for me became important because i felt this the very beginning of an atomization in culture where each one was moving into some kind of autistic or cellular life so cell phone was new then but the idea that we're now each of us in our own kind of pod Mm -hmm. or singular life a kind of one-by-one one approach. Right. So this is important to say, too, because the universal of the Father no longer holds. Mm-hmm. Thank goodness. <laughs> we can't say that the experience that my good friend Lyle Ashton Harris has 
who I was on the Whitney program with, is the same experience that I have. Mm-hmm. Nor could we say, well, you get, you get the idea. Like, there is this kind of, we could, let me put it this way, the singularity in a way has already happened. I don't mean the singularity of, you know, artificial intelligence. I mean the singularity of each person, one by one, wanting a part of the larger culture. So the only universal is singularity. Mm-hmm. It's that paradox that we're living. And I guess we're the most individualist we've ever been, right? Yes. To go along with that. Yes. The tricky part yeah. is how was a collective formed then politically? That becomes the tricky part. And we can see it in what's happened around school shootings, just using the name that comes to mind with Emma Gonzalez mm-hmm. and that movement, that youth movement. There is this moment in which young people put those singularities or those distinctions aside for this common cause. When did you first make work about school shootings? In 2000. In the wake of? In the wake of, uh, well, Kiplan Kinkle shot his parents in 1997 in Oregon. And that that was the shooting that caught my attention. And then it was, yes, that's Kipland there. Um, and he has bullets taped to his chest. He was suicidal after shooting students. I forget how many now, maybe nine. And then his mother and his father. Hmm. And then, of course, that was followed by Columbine. And in 2001, I was invited by the Queen's Museum to participate in an exhibition titled Crossing the Line. All of the artists were asked to create new work based on works that had been exhibited at the Queen's Museum. Mm -hmm. And for me, the one that really crossed the line was The 13 Most Wanted Men by Andy Warhol because he famously, the work was famously censored, and he, um, rather than remove the work, painted over those, I forget how many canvases, 13, um, with a silver paint. So it was kind of like an erasure, mm-hmm. where you could still see the uh, a ghost of what had been there. So for that context, I produced a portfolio of uh, prints called... 13 shooters and those were 13 boys at the time who had carried out these school mass shootings there was something interesting in that work about the way it's titled that it's not correct me if i'm wrong but it's that each work each print is not titled by the name of the boy but rather the name of the news outlet in which they're appearing yes thank you for your eye to that detail Mm -hmm. because it's it's an important it's important to make the distinction that I did that in 2000 before there was a, a move culturally to omit the name of the shooter. That's not why I did it. Mm-hmm. That predates that, that injunction by culture to do that by like 15 years. My idea, and speaking of intuition, I, had, I just quote unquote knew that mm-hmm. this was the way to do it. It's easy to say that by doing it with the media source... I'm indicting the media. Mm -hmm. Sure, that's partly there. But what I was really doing, blindly, was putting a name of the father, or rather putting the true name of the father, to these boys. Kipland Kinkle was one of those 13. But Kipland, Mm -hmm. something with that name failed. 
or otherwise he wouldn't have done this. There was something in the symbolic that didn't hold for him. What his true name is, was that fame, Mm -hmm. was that elevation. NBC News shooter. Yeah, exactly. because that's what he is now. Exactly. Yeah. So that, for me, was this very early play with the name of the father. And that name was missing for them. Mm -hmm. But the name that held them, that holds them now, exactly as you say, is NBC News or, um, I don't know, a thousand other news sources. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because now I think that that move to omit the name of someone, someone's name it's it's so strange now because it's almost like a practical concern because you can find these people easily. That's true. That's an example of where techno- where technology mm-hmm. kind of um, accelerates or fuels or facilitates this idea of identity, subjectivity, mm-hmm. availability, transparency, etc. It's much like a photograph too because a lot of this reminds me of those early criminalistic photographs. You know, mm-hmm. Bertillon. The, uh, Phrenology. Trying to understand what a criminal looks like and mm. trying, and this crazy theory that you can predict who's a criminal and who isn't by what they look like, by what their photograph is, or what their measurements are. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's almost like this strange version of that with, with uh, profiles online, where after the fact, you feel as though you can look at someone's profile and you can kind of understand that something was wrong the whole time, you know? Or not. Well, I don't think you can. I think that's right. that's what I'm saying is I think it's an illusion, but I think people project onto these things. Exactly. They 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 basically there's a rupture. Mm-hmm. There's a rent in in reality. Mm-hmm. So this is what I call being confronted to the void or to the real. And then we just civilization just circulates around that hole. Like let's have the towers come down 7, 8, 9 repeatedly how many times you just or we go to Facebook again and again trying to find a reason, and there is no reason. Mm-hmm. For me, what the, the, the shooting that kind of um, is an emblem for that is Stephen Paddock in Las Vegas mm-hmm. last October. He did not fit the profile mm-hmm. of any of these young men. So what? He had money. He did it. We have to, we have to conclude. Mm-hmm. It's chilling because he could. Mm-hmm. And here's another chilling thing. This is an answer for some people to contend with these unprecedented changes. I've always said, my, there was a show that I did in 2014, which uh, the poet and writer Kenneth Goldsmith called my Death and Disaster series. And these were paintings that contended with recent acts of American violence or malfeasance. I call it my American carnage show. And I would talk about the idea that it's not the changes in civilization that are most concerning. It's the effects they have on subjects who cannot handle it. So mostly young men. Mm -hmm. And because of the lack of any um, laws against the NRA Mm -hmm. and uh, healthcare issues in this country, we could say the NRA facilitates these acts of violence. But the idea is that it's it's the effects of the changes that that are most concerning. You have this relationship with your mother, and you're and you're painting with her growing up, mm-hmm. and you come to New York and you're doing this work, 
And a sort of pivotal point for you, it seems like, is in 2008, shedding that name. Mm -hmm. So what about your father? Um, Theoretically, the father always fails. The father cannot live up to the status of the symbolic father. So there's always a... there's always a faltering. My father was in the work consistently that I did as Robert Beck. But I felt as if that wasn't enough. Mm. And I, that earlier phase of the work is so much about rituals of masculinity, rites of masculine passage. So we can say that he functioned for me for a while artistically and he was there just enough I'm not psychotic there is some hold I have on reality but he could not handle or was absent from the chaos that was created otherwise at home Mm. which is to say the maternal enjoyment and I always use enjoyment in quotes The French term jouissance is what I mean. It's coming more and more into American vocabulary. Mm -hmm. So jouissance is a kind of exquisite enjoyment, a a dark, voluptuous enjoyment. You enjoy too much. Mm -hmm. There's a surplus. The one that we were talking about earlier. Say more. The the kind of enjoyment that that the American public has over watching something terrible unfold. Yes. A fascination. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Jouissance. Exactly. And that jouissance was something that I had to handle then for myself, Mm -hmm. which is what this new work as Robert Buck does. And whether that jouissance is in civilization or whether it has to do with my mother specifically, Mm. um, it's, it's both, really, at the same time. And this is also why the future is feminine, because of this jouissance. And women, somehow on the feminine side, that sliding, that movement, that not all is prevalent, as opposed to the all, the all of the phallus, so that everything could be handled by this universal there is no there's no longer a universal so we're on the side of the not all Mm -hmm. and it's an uncharted territory on a personal side the canvas that we see here the the fox stole is that's mink actually that mink stole used to belong to my mother so that that's a way of handling the material you could call it that I was really aiming to contend with Mm. as an artist and all artists you know this have to challenge themselves and have to don't even have to it's we really have no choice when did you start going to terlingua i went to terlingua um, (laughs) couldn't get through this without talking about the show no it's good i love it um (laughs) and they're related in some way i went to the big bend for the first time in 2007 Mm mm-hmm and I just knew something went off inside, like I wanted to be a part of that 
landscape. Do you think there's something about being raised on the East Coast that just primes people for that? Yes. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Or not. Like the, the when I first went through West Texas, it was in 1997, and I was with someone who could care less mm-hmm. and kept saying, there's <laughs> nothing here. And I'm like, are but you there's kidding? there's so much Everything here. Everything yeah. is here. <laughs> And when I bought the cabin in 2000, it was February 2008, people were like, what, what have you done? You're just going to be looking at the same mountain range every day. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, it's not the same mountain range every day. It changes by the hour. Mm -hmm. And that became my extimate studio, like more of a studio than the studio that we're sitting in. Right. Like where I get inspiration and... Um, things come to me that are not premeditated. Right. I think we talked once about the relationship you have, and you were saying that you almost conceive of what one should do in Terlingua, and then you execute here. Yes. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. Or not? Maybe not should do, but um, want a desire. Yeah. A, a desire to do. Yeah. And just to be clear, it's not my place is not interlingua. It's mm-hmm. an hour's drive off-road outside of Terlingua. <laughs> if you could manage to make it even more remote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 There's something about that isolation that allows for quiet. Mm-hmm. No demand coming from the phone. No demand coming from email. No injunction. And that time is so precious to me. Mm. One really has to fight for it. And I know we were talking about this when you were setting up. You can have that in Marfa as well. Yeah. Where you are just there with the sky and and the field and the mountains in the distance. When did you move into this studio that we're in? Um, 2003. It's interesting. Like I asked this for people who've been in New York a while. I mean, do you still like being in New York? Yes. What is it about the city? Diversity, the speed of life, the demands. Mm-hmm. I think if there's a there's a, a kind of pushing in New York that once you get used to that tempo, it's hard to let go of it. I would say, William, because I've asked myself a lot, there's a certain drive level in New York, which is to say ambition, that I haven't found anywhere else in the United States. So looking for something that's commensurate with one's own internal drive. But the idea of diversity is also paramount for me. I was on the subway the other day and it was very crowded. I think it was one of those torrential downpours. (laughs) The trains weren't coming and it finally came and everyone is packed into a car. Each one is trying to get their own piece of the post, Mm -hmm. you know, to, to hold on and I yes mm-hmm. yeah exactly yeah. like one fist over the other yeah. and every fist was a different color mm, cool and I exactly I got a chill even as I was saying that and everyone knew mm-hmm. there was a kind of meta moment like everyone was in that elevated moment mm-hmm. like no jerk no asshole no one pushing it was just like okay we are all in this together And I love that about New York. And I feel it's like, it's a kind of energy that it's weird, maybe because of its its dichotomy nature. 
but it's an energy that I can find in the in the in in the in the desert too, mm-hmm. where there's like an elevation, and you realize you are part of something much bigger than yourself. Robert Buck, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I'd like to thank Robert Buck as well as Takako Tanabe at Ulterior. Remember that you can see my portrait of Robert at his New York studio at williamjesslaird.com slash imageculture or on Instagram at williamjesslaird or at imageculture. This show is produced by Sarah Levine and our music is by Jack Staffan and Eliza Callahan. If you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review or sharing it with a friend. Thanks for listening and see you next week.